Yes, we are, Jack. Yes, we are, Andrew. That, that's not the most uh, uh, unawkward. Uh, right, it's like you. it's like in our uh, it's like at the bottom of our top ten. Yes. Welcome to the wages of cinema. I'm Jack. I'm Andrew. And uh, actually, just before we get into uh, the the main uh, stuff we're going to be talking about today, I'd just like to give a mention. Uh, to somebody uh, now, we often ask at the uh, near the end of a, a, a segment, you know, about reaching out to us if you have any questions or inquiries. Are you or, saying we have fan mail, Jack? We got a notification recently. Yes, like a takedown notification. What does that mean? I don't know. Like we copyrighted, infringed something. What is it, Jack? No, it uh, no. Somebody posted on our uh, wall on nice. our Facebook. All right. Uh, this guy, uh, his name is Fernando L. Perez. Thank you, Fernando. He just said, awesome podcast. It's... Can you hear the drums, Fernando? Send us a message. Let us know. <laughs> Are we going to have drums added on here? You'll see. All right. But he said, awesome podcast. It's informative, funny, critical, but without being pretentious. New fan here. And uh, he followed that up with asking if... Uh, we should do a film about... We should do a pod... Not a film. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe we'll do a film. No. Um, he asked if we should do a show about cult films or a cult film in order to explain what criteria a film needs to meet in order to be categorized as cult. Ooh. Um, that's really intriguing. Yeah, and then he says, Anyway, I think it would clear some things up since nowadays every film that Hollywood smears us with is called a, quote, cult classic. At least it seems that way to me. L-O-L. That is a really good question. I mean, if we do have a podcast episode about this, which is a pretty good idea, I mean, I'm. It's it seems like cult film status is it's one of those things like I know it when I see it. Yes. So, you know, like Evil Dead is a cult film. Yes. And that's the only one I can think off the top of my head. But I'm not sure what makes Evil Dead a cult film. I just know that it is. Well, I think it's it's a factor to me is time like I, I think that a danger sometimes is when a movie is called like an instant cult classic yeah you need time separate for the cult to begin or to to to, to accumulate that's otherwise you know a cult doesn't just spring out of thin air i mean well maybe certain religious cults but even like scientology had to kind of build itself up before it could be called a cult i remember uh, <laughs> to, to make a comparison, I remember Craig Johnson on uh, Welcome to the Basement. He was he talked about like working in a video store. And he said that uh, a movie that wasn't very good but got checked out a lot, that got rented a lot, was The Net with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> yes, but he said that doesn't make it a cult film, even though people seem to rent it for no reason, either because it had Sandra Bullock or it just had was about the internet or something. Or it know. might have, or but, it might have been because they were like, you know, when you go to a video store, they have, you know, the walls lined with copies of things like the net. Possibly, but he's but he said the thing that makes a cult film a cult film is having a following. Yes. So a film like Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, a can, lot of David, think, a lot of David Lynch films. Yeah, David Lynch. You know, films. Twin Peaks. We could say has a major cult. Yes, definitely. You know, and even like uh, Blue Velvet. Even though a lot of people now look at that as one of the classics of the '80s, that has its own kind of mega cult. Uh, 
I mean, you could even... I mean, there are certain movies which we... Well, there are also movies that we know aren't good, but they have now a cult. Like, you brought Rocky Horror. The one that is really now a cult film could be seen as The Room. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's where every month in New York City, they have a midnight screening, or they have a couple midnight screenings. And Tommy Wiseau even shows up in his, like, mummified form where he rises out of his crypt to uh, get extra money for making an appearance before his piece-of-crap movie. Eh. I don't know, Laughing you could, all the you way could even the say Star Wars is a cult film, no? Well, or has that kind of surpassed that? That's tricky. Because, because I think... The, the, the cult of Star Wars fans are really intense. True. But then you also have the people who, you know, mom and dad want to go see Star Wars over, you know, right after they finished Christmas dinner. They're not part of the cult. Well, but then you think about other successful properties like the Marvel films. Does that make, I mean, they have their own following. Does that make them cult films? Mm. I mean, I think cult implies a certain small scale... Maybe number, there's a, certain, a small number of dedicated fans. That's implied, at least. Maybe there's a certain point where it stops being a cult and just becomes a mainstream success. That would be an interesting kind of level to chart. Another cult film we've actually watched and talk about, talked about for this show, 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Well, that, though... I mean, but does that qualify if... Like, does that even have that many people who really like that movie? It, like, it's had I, a resurgence. Well, because I hadn't even heard of the movie until a couple of years ago. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that the cult didn't exist. You just didn't know about it. I, I usually thought I was pretty on top of things. You thought you were that. <laughs> but anyway, this is a great idea. Yeah, We've already started talking we'll about it, it so much. We're, uh, we Maybe should we'll definitely come... return to this. Yeah, again, so thank you very much, Fernando. And like we and like we always say, if you have a comment, we will read it on the show. I will repeat that. We will read it on the show. We are audience-friendly. We... We, we, we want to love our audience. We want to hug them and squeeze them and maybe... No, we won't choke the light out of you. Um, but uh, if you want to give us a message, uh, again, you can leave it on Facebook. You can send us a tweet. You can email us at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. And, again, we're on Facebook at the Wages of Cinema Podcast. You can find us there, also on Twitter. Uh, Tumblr, you can ask us a question. I think that's a thing you can do. Uh, Instagram, we usually post uh, certain fun little things. Um, another fun thing, by the way, I just put, po- I, tonight I posted a, a little screenshot on Instagram. Uh, it was a year ago today that we were in the paper. We were? Do you remember that? You, oh, you got yeah. us in the paper. <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, oh, now yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah. Back when it's we a, were. It's our paper anniversary. Yes, when we were promoting our first live show. Yeah. Which, you know, who knows, maybe we'll do that again. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe we'll do a little tease there for for our for audience. Maybe uh, you know we don't want to say anything just now, but you never know. All right. I'm <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so we're not going to say anything about no. that. <laughs> All right. But thank you. But but thank you for sending us a message, and we hope to hear more from you, uh, lovely listeners. Now to get into something I wanted to talk about, though. First off, how, do you follow uh, the internet uh, reviewer, or he also does, or he does video essays? This guy named Tony Zhu. I hmm. hope I pronounced him correctly. His series is called Every Frame is a Painting. I've heard of that series. I do not follow it very closely. Okay. I mean, it's possible you may have watched a video and, and maybe don't remember. Like, I, like he has a video uh, about Edgar Wright 
called How to Do Visual Comedy. Um, okay. He has a video about Spielberg and how he's kind of underrated for his one his one shot takes, which are very like you know sometimes directors you kind of notice when they do a really long take in one shot. He does it very unobtrusively. Um, hmm. Scorsese's use of silence in movies, because usually you think of him as a loud director, but he just sounds so. So he does a lot. Scorsese of these... isn't a loud director. He's a director who doesn't stop talking. Yeah, <laughs> or characters who, uh, yeah, who continue to talk. <laughs> yes. Um, but recently, he he doesn't come out with videos very often. Like he, because some people come out of video every week. He really will take his time to put out video, and it almost becomes like an event when it's suddenly like, oh my god, he has new video out. Yeah. So he had a new video, which came out this week. Um, obviously, I'm guessing you didn't watch it, so it's all right. Thanks. <laughs> I didn't mean there's a put-down. I was just... Uh, <laughs> I, I just assumed because you hadn't even heard of this guy that you probably hadn't watched the video. Okay, yeah, but well, you, you can watch it later. Granted, you are right. All right. <laughs> he has a video called... Uh, the. I think it might be called like, the Marvel Symphonic... Uh, something let me let me just make sure i get this named right because i want to give him uh his due um it's uh oh the marvel symphonic universe okay and what he kind of his sort of premise um is that basically you know one of the hallmarks of a great score is that you really remember a lot of the themes i know we talked actually last year we had a musical episode and we talked Where we about, all sang the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we tried to do that. Um, but we talked a lot about music scores and great scores. And a lot of that time... Some of our favorite composers. And, yeah, exactly. And uh, people um, who you don't expect to be yeah, composers. Yeah. Um, and before I get into some of the specific things he did, which I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about, he basically put his thesis, as good as the Marvel movies may be to varying degrees, the scores are pretty forgettable hmm. and it really and it almost is like a symptom of hollywood right now at large when it comes to music scores that it's not just marvel movies it's but they're like the most prominent because they're the most successful films in the world right now they've grossed more those 13 movies that they've put out in like the past eight eight nine years have grossed more than star wars and harry potter i think even which okay. I think is kind of crazy. Um, now, when I heard, when I was watching this point, I mean, first, I mean, on on the kind of surface level, I I disagreed on one little point, which is that I think the theme for Avengers is memorable. Yes. Like, and I like what happened was though the thing that made me a little bit uneasy about his video was he began it interviewing people on the street in Vancouver, asking them to hum like memorable film scores. So, you know, he asked some... You know, that's something I've always wanted to do. Oh, yeah? That exact thing. I've always thought of going out, like, on the streets and, like, and, like having a sort of er informal survey where it's like, you, can you hum or whistle a theme from a movie? And that way you would kind of figure out how much a certain film has permeated popular culture. Yes. So, you know, you'd probably, uh, I was thinking you'd probably get things like Jaws or Indiana Jones or Star Wars. Well, that's what happened. Like, you know, he, you know, people were like, you know, they said, uh, do you know Star Wars? And someone hummed the theme from Star Wars. Someone asked uh, James Bond. They knew James Bond. Oh, yeah. Harry Potter, they knew that. Then they said, hum a theme from a, from a Marvel movie. 
and they're like, uh, 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 smoke grenade. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now at the very end, as kind of like, I guess a joke, there was one person who then did the theme for, uh, Spider-Man, but from the sixties. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, of course. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. But, yeah. But the point is, though, like, watching that, I feel like maybe that might have been slightly unfair in t- as a comparison point, only because Star Wars, 007, Harry, even Harry Potter now, those are some of the most recognizable themes in the world. Right. Not just for mo- like, almost just in pop culture, just in the consciousness. Because, like, the theme for Star Wars, yeah, of course it's a good melody. You've heard it now many, many times. Not every just year. in films either. Yeah, like you know, I've gone to sport events. I've got I've gone to, I've gone to baseball games where they'll play the Imperial March for the opposing team, and then you know the uh, the the end uh, ceremony music from A New Hope for the home team. Right. And uh, yeah, and double you know double seven that theme's everywhere. So I kind of wondered: is it fair to place that kind of standard that the Marvel movies have to have? that high because like part of it was he also showed you know certain clips from the movies where like in iron man you have but then like here's the part that's a little also unfair he'll show a scene where like you know tony stark is in one of those scenes where he's putting together his suit for the first time and he's trying to find out okay what's gonna work uh with this and you hear the music and it's not very big it's more like okay, it's underlying the, the scene. The only music cues I can remember from Iron Man are basically just an electric guitar. Unfortunately, unfortunately, what I remember from Iron Man are like a few of like the ACDC songs they used. Yeah, I mean, but that's uh, they didn't even use ACDC in Iron Man three, so you know. But I guess my point, but the, when I was watching, I'm like, okay, this isn't a scene that should require a lot of like you know a heavy like a major theme to underlie it well let me get back to what you were talking about with like that sort of man on the street sort of interview thing i don't is that the be all end all of music popularity no because how many of those people hummed an ennio morricone theme or something from like philip glass i mean or even bernard herman right i mean just because they weren't known by people on the street doesn't mean that the music is isn't great or that the composers aren't great that's uh now then again uh you know he hasn't so much proved the obscurity of the of these like marvel soundtracks he's more of just reinforced the ubiquity of you know things like indiana jones and star wars and things like that well but you know that's i do have to agree with his point there aren't many marvel movies where i think about the music i can think of the music from the avengers and from captain america winter soldier yes he points out winter soldier as one of the movies that does use music well i love the credits music for winter soldier that's fantastic I kind of forgot the credits music, but he pointed out an interesting scene, but then he also still found a way to criticize it. There's a scene where uh, Steve Rogers is walking through the museum where he's seeing like the, uh, the exhibit to himself. Yeah. And, and then like Gary Sinise, I think comes on and does like narration about, uh, was that really Gary Sinise? I think so. Oh, that's awesome. I, I think I finally recognized him hearing it in the video. But, like, this internet reviewer, he was like, why is this narration here? 
maybe you know it's really drowning out the music but i was thinking you do kind of need that narration that moment because it's about captain america hearing and seeing the media reflection that's been created about him in you know in the future i I would really have to think about that because I've been meaning to watch Winter Soldier again for a long time. Well, I guess the point he was trying to make also is what if you just had the music there and didn't have the narration? That's an interesting experiment. Yeah. So, but then he, but then he also leaped off into talking about how a lot of Hollywood movies, and I didn't know about this, use uh, what they call temp tracks. Do you know what that is? That's like when. If you're, like, screening a film, you put in something that's, like, a stand-in for the music so that when you're watching it, it's not, like, oh, the dramatic scene is happening and there's no music. Yeah. I remember we saw a movie, the one where the astronauts went to Europa, and they used the... Europa Report. Right. And they they used uh, music from Inception. Yeah. I remember when we saw Apollo 18. uh, Were you there for that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember Apollo 18. No, I don't know if they use this in the theatrical version but there's a moment where the astronauts are listening to core of the crimson king yeah uh by king crimson i kind of wondered is this going to be in the final movie like but anyway but they do that for scores a lot of that comes down to when they have these test screenings they the the composer may may not be done yet or the composer might not even be involved right but a complaint for a number of composers is okay so the score is already on the movie, but now I have to make you forget the score that's there and give you something better. You know what I mean? Like, the, the fact that, like, they, like, sometimes a director will give the person the movie with this temp score, and they'll be like, okay, do something like this. And, <laughs> you know, what if they have, like, they're put into a corner where I can't do something a little bit more original, I have to rely on this music that you have been editing to and may already love. Hmm, that's tricky. Yeah. Again, I don't have any easy answer for that, but this video... Danny Elfman was one of the people complaining about it in this video. Like, they showed a clip of him where he's like, temp tracks are the bane of my existence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And apparently apparently the only... Like, this one composer was like, the only director I know who doesn't use temp tracks that I work with is Roman Polanski. Hmm. I found that interesting, but... I don't know. I, again, it's a tough but subject. This... But the, the thing is that the, it it does permeate and make a problem. Like even um, one of your one of our one of, a movie I think we've talked about before, Three Hundred, actually got in legal trouble. Really? Because they were they used a little bit of music from the movie Titus. Titus. You know about this? No, but I recognize the similarities yes. between those two tracks. Well, they got sued for that. Or well, they got in legal hot water, and they actually, the studio had to apologize because the score literally aped part of the score from Titus at yeah. a certain point. I don't know if it was through the whole movie, but it, there was one No, it's moment. this one track that sounds it was very like, similar to the... It was one of those types of things. It's exactly like that. <laughs> it... Make sure to buy my what... new album of Jack Does <laughs> the themes with his voice. And Andrew too. Right, I, I'm his backup. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, it's it's a problem that's... that like there aren't that many memorable film scores if you look back, like from the past like ten years. And if they are uh, memorable, they might not be memorable for the right reasons. Like, I remember the scores to maybe like the 
Dark Knight movies or Inception, but not because they, they're that great. It's because of <laughs> the Inception horn. Okay. The merits of Hans Zimmer are debatable, but I don't think that we're really seeing a downturn in the quality of movie scores because we it's we're talking about a simple matter of memorable movie scores to the entire number of films that have ever existed yes that's going to be a very small ratio each film requires its own mood sometimes too i mean you can have some really strong themes but then there may be scenes like the one i was just mentioning where iron man is just doing a simple thing like putting together his suit and i don't know maybe the point might be you don't need music at all in that scene or if the music is there and it's not doing anything for the scene I, but maybe you might need that music to just maybe accentuate a mood even if you don't notice it very strongly and also i mean there is the valid point that the marvel movies don't have particularly memorable scores and can we ex live can they be better yeah probably sure some of them are good but i mean again we're yeah, talking about i mean i'm about... not rushing out to get the soundtrack to thor no <laughs> uh, but it's still like but the movies are still good so do the scores matter of course scores matter okay i mean whether they're good or not is something that you can evaluate in, in a subjective sense and in even something a little more objective it's but can we expect every marvel movie to have a score on par with star wars no or Indiana Jones? i don't think so no i mean there are some you know, marvel only... movies that aren't comparable in quality to each other yeah there's only one john williams yeah as well i mean and for even, now and well yeah but even john williams i mean i i mean i gotta be honest is you, you know i did I, I though i liked force awakens there weren't that many new themes that i could point out yeah. I don't know. I John mean, Williams maybe... is the only person involved in the entire production of Star Wars, including the prequels, who comes up, who gets out of that mess scot-free. Yes. Because I own the prequel soundtracks. I really like them. The music yeah. is great. Duel of the Fates is great. Yeah. But I mean, John Williams has movies he scored that no one, uh, that he ha he's made scores that no one gives a damn about. I'm sure that there are parts I, He scored of the... Valley of the Dolls, a very Ooh. early work of John Williams. Yeah. Now I'm not well, and I'm not saying John Williams sucks because he made one <laughs> score to a really cheesy, hey, terrible hey, movie. Hey, John Williams had to pay the bills, right? But I mean, he's done. He's probably making a score for a movie now, and he's probably made a score for a movie five years ago that no one's talking about at all. Yeah. Now I mean, did he do the score for Hook? I mean, did very he? likely. Yeah. I mean, he did every I'm Spielberg not... movie except like two. Yeah. Jaws 2 wasn't a Spielberg movie, right? No. Okay. Good. No, he, he did not do any of the sequels. Uh, but he, he's not, like, creating culturally uh, groundbreaking scores all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now, again, would it be nice if, like, every Marvel movie had, like, instantly memorable themes? Sure. But the fact that The Avengers has a really good theme, like, I... If I was interviewed in that video, I would have been able to hum the theme for that immediately. Yeah, me too. Because that is actually a... Like, that's... That harkens back to... 
maybe it, not quite like levels of Batman or Superman, but pretty close. And it's and it's, it's by Alan Silvestri, who did Back to the Future. Yes, which is also a fantastic score. Yes, yeah. So I think the point is, it's an interesting video. I do in, I do encourage you to watch to, to watch it if you haven't yet. But there are also things about it that I think could be questionable, or at least. You know, you don't have to take everything like, oh, this man's absolutely right about everything. No. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but I do want to give a, pl- a shout out to Tony Zhu because this guy, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He, because he has a lot of really I, I hope we're videos. pronouncing his name right now that we've torn apart his thesis. <laughs> <laughs> I've shown you to be the hack fraud you are. Um, no, but, but like, I've shown this guy's videos, actually, to some of my film students. Like, he has a video about Michael Bay called What is Bayhem? Uh, and, the, like, I really, of, you made me really curious. I now have to see all well, he Well, part of the, the thesis of that video is, you know, I actually don't think Michael Bay is a very good director. I think he may even be a bad director, but we should understand what he does. And he then puts in a clip of Werner Herzog talking in an interview about how you must not avert your eyes at what is coming at us. You you cannot look away. And <laughs> I guess he was referring to Michael Bay. Um, or not, now not directly. I must but... return to the, the set of my son, my son. What have ye done? <laughs> razzle, dazzle, razzle, dazzle them. <laughs> but yeah, no. So he, he's a very fascinating video essayist. You know, a, a really good critic. So it's just maybe this video. It's like I get his point, but it's also, I don't know. It's making me a little puzzled. It's also on a personal note, it really affected me in a way because, as a filmmaker on a few of my films, I've actually done the temp track thing. Yeah. And now that didn't mean that like I basically did that because I was editing, and you know, like a lot you know, like directors do, I needed to make sure I had a good rhythm for some of my scenes. Now, was I going to keep these? No, but like I, but then I trusted my composer say, okay, I know it's maybe a little bit of the mood of this, but emotionally the scenes more about this, Hmm. but I think maybe more of the problem he was trying to point to was if a director just tells the composer, okay, do it exactly like this. Then that's a problem. That depends upon a relationship between two artists and whether, and how much they trust each other. Yeah. There's, there's real, I don't think, uh, I don't think you can make a generalization about that. No. Um, I mean, George Lucas did the same thing with Star Wars. Yes, actually, that's true. He did put classical music on A New Hope yeah. originally. That's true. And also, you know who... But it's interesting to find out the directors who end up keeping their temp tracks, because originally 2001 was supposed to have a score by this composer, Alex North, hmm. who I think composed Spartacus, but then Stanley Kubrick was listening to a lot of, you know, classical music, and he was kind of trying to test out in the scenes, and he was like, yeah, I'm not going with you. I'm keeping this. I hope he hadn't done any of the work. Well, I think Alex North did score some, some of the music mm. for it. It might be out there somewhere. He probably still got paid. Yeah, that's, that's fine. I, and no one would argue that 2001 is a poorer movie because of its score every movie needs its in fact you you remember that movie in part because of that score yeah you know that movie would not be what it i don't think you know that movie probably ruined the danube waltz for people just as 
Clockwork Orange ruined Beethoven for people. It's a cliche now that whenever you have astronauts weightless in space, you play the Blue yeah. Danube. Blitz. Like I saw the parody of that before I saw 2001. Again, I, God, I brought this up last time. 2001 is one of the most. I've probably spoken about this. I doubt that there is a television show produced in America since 2001 came out that does not reference 2001 in some way. Either by using that same music or like having a monolith or. The Simpsons! Yes. Like, I, I even, knew about 2001 before I saw 2001. Even like Disney Channel shows like Phineas and Ferb reference 2001 <laughs> constantly. Yeah. I'm sure Animaniacs, Animaniacs referenced 2001, and did. not just in their parody of 2001. <laughs> they did a full parody of 2001. Yes, God's sake. Good. All right. So anyway, that's so that scores. Video. They're great. You heard it from Andrew first, folks. I saw an interesting video. You remember uh, Captain Christian? He did the yes. videos about yes. uh, Fully Cooley and Calvin and Hobbes and all that. The stuff. The new one about H.R. Uh, Giger. Yes, and Alien. Okay. Yes. Really interesting stuff about the development of the xenomorph, and mm. how it's not just supposed how, not only how iconic it is. Uh, Captain Christian called it the most iconic horror monster since Dracula, mm. and ha and what was most interesting is that he talked about how the alien is not just a monster; it's supposed to be a seductive monster. Yeah, well, there's a fully sexual component to it. Yeah. And in order to, and in order to fulfill that sexual component, they made the alien this very appealing looking monster that we want to see on screen. Fascinating video. Yeah, yeah, th that guy does a lot of good videos. He he delivers the way that he talks reminds me a little bit of this other guy, the nerd writer. Um, he and he, I mean, he also does movie reviews and other things like that. But he also covers a lot of art and politics and things like that. But it's like this kind of earnestness in the voice that's really appealing. Yeah. Um, another speak in that vein, uh, the nerd writer just did a video about Saving Private Ryan, where mm. he broke down as much as he could in seven minutes uh, the opening battle on Normandy Beach, right? And why uh, it's so astonishing, in large part because of how Spielberg did it. Like he didn't use storyboards, he didn't plan any of it out. He just went onto the beach and little by little shot the sequence yeah and uh yeah it's like, if a lesser director had done that it would have turned into a disaster it it would have been an incoherent it would have been a christopher nolan movie oh i'm, I'm kidding that's a cheap shot Jack. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a rim shot no actually i'm sure it would have been fine actually it's funny though that i mentioned that because i think that i'm actually looking forward to christopher nolan's next movie Sure. Um, do you know what that is? No. You haven't seen the trailer for Dunkirk? Oh, wait, yeah, never mind. Okay, you have. Do you, you mean, like, that little teaser? Yeah. That, to me, was just... Even if the rest of the movie ends up not being that great, it will be memorable for that one shot where all the soldiers, one after another, turn their heads to look at up at whatever is coming down on them. Yeah. Like, that is a very memorable image, so... Yeah. Nothing can take that away. Well, now I am looking forward to it. Thanks, Jack. Yeah, I need to learn more about Dunkirk before I, I see that movie. Very interesting. You'll enjoy a, any book that you read about Dunkirk. Okay. and uh, Take it from the history guy. I will. I'll take it from the history guy. All right, so just a couple of quick movie things I wanted to talk about before we move on to our next segment. Uh, I had an interesting double feature 
last weekend mm-hmm. where I had, uh, I almost kind of dub it like I went to uh, the womb house. The what? <laughs> womb, like W. No, I know what a womb is. <laughs> I watched two movies. I've never heard those two words put together. What's going on? No, I didn't think I would ever say them either. I saw two movies that had to do with uh, women who really wanted to have babies and right. the troubles getting there. Uh, and they both have titles that are very big and almost sound like books or dirty movies. One is called When the Bow Breaks. Right. And one is called, and the other is called The Light Between Oceans. And uh, you give me a worried look, like, oh, what is this? It's like, all right, go on. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure you'll think of something. Um, so When the Bow Breaks is an awful movie. Um, it looked awful. <laughs> it looks you, you like... You saw an ad for it? It looks like the black actor's version of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. A little bit, not, not maybe not quite that same plot, but in the same vein. Here's the here's the funny thing about. This. I think your wife, Corey, she calls it like the Lifetime movie. Yes. Well, no, no. This is there was a critic who actually made a great little blurb in one of the blurbs on Rotten Tomatoes. He said, "When the Bell Breaks" is like they had a a contest for a Lifetime movie uh, to have the chance to become a real movie released in theaters, and this one. Yeah. <laughs> and. The funny thing is, last year, I don't know if you remember me telling you about this movie called A Deadly Adoption. Yes, I remember. Is that the one with Will Ferrell? Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig did this strange kind of parody. It was like a completely deadpan satire. But not parody enough about a woman, about a couple who want to have a child and so, so they get a surrogate. And that's what this movie is. When the bow breaks, yeah. uh, this married couple they can't have kids, so they get this young, attractive woman who is a, who they want, who will have their ch- child. But they move the woman in because she has an abusive boyfriend, and then, then like she gets the hots for the husband, and blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. So it's like they took the parody of it and played it straight. <laughs> And the funny thing is, so I talked to Corey about this because she has, you know, she watches a lot of these Lifetime movies. Uh, it's kind of like guilty pleasure stuff. But she has seen two other movies that are about uh, couples looking for surrogates who go crazy. Why are there so many crazy horror stories about, about I don't giving know. birth and or about adopting children? Yes. It's I like, remember Orphan? Yes. Okay, uh, Granted, I that was not... a little bit more towards the horror genre, right? This, like, because a lot of these movies are meant to be like erotic thrillers or suspense or suburban thrillers, right? And they all date back to like Fatal Attraction, yeah, basically. Or even even before that, you go back to uh, um, Play Misty for me, yeah. Which like originally, the I don't know if you've seen Fatal Attraction, but I have. You have okay. Well, originally that movie was offered to John Carpenter, <sighs> and he. And he turned it down, giving two reasons. He said, one, that you're just ripping off Play Misty for me, uh, which is the Clint Eastwood. It's his first movie's director. It was also about a woman who ends up stalking right, him. Right. Two, he was like, you know, the ending that you have right now, which in the original ending for Failed Traction, Glenn Close kills herself. Right. And he's like, that's not going to work. You're, the audience will never buy that. You're going to have to redo the ending, and I don't want to be here for that. And he was proved right, because they had to reshoot the ending to where, lo and behold, Glenn Close, uh, spoiler, uh, 
it's spoiler. not the ending right. that that no. Jack just said. All right. Yeah. Well, you, you'll you'll figure it out. But the point is, this movie is. I wanted a little bit more from when the bell breaks of like cheesy fun. I wanted to have a little bit more fun with the characters, and for two thirds of the movie, everything is so formulaic. It is insane. And then in the last third, when it, I was hoping, okay, here's where it's going to get crazy. It kind of does, but it doesn't do it fully, or it doesn't do it in a way that was fully satisfying to me. It was just, yeah. eh, all right, well, you did this again. Because it's weird now that the studio Screen Gems, who often puts out a lot of crap, they're part of the 90% that you always talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they now have a trend of putting out movies that are that feature black actors, and it doesn't make any big deal about them being black. It's just, okay, here's black That's cast. Just being, yeah, which is fine. But then there are always very over-melodramatic thrillers. Two years ago, there was a movie with Idris Elba called No Good Deed. Mm-hmm. Last year, there was another movie, which I probably did talk about as well, called The Perfect Guy. Mm-hmm. And now there's this, When the Bow Breaks. And, yeah, it's... But now, but now I want to get the, the, to why I made this double feature talk. Because the other movie is called The Light Between Oceans, which is actually a very serious movie. Or it's meant, it's not in the vein of being exactly lifetime movie quality. This actually has real actors. Uh, not to put down the people in When the Bow Breaks. I'm sure they're fine. This has performances that... Michael Fassbender oh. and Alicia Vikander and Rachel Weisz. So, real people. Bigger uh, stars, you mean. Yeah, it's stars. Yeah, that's a better word for it. That's really what you're saying. And this movie... This was actually pretty good. Um, mostly for the acting. This, but then also the story in this is... Like, Michael Fassbender, he is a veteran of World War One, And he's he's kind of troubled. And he wants to just stay by himself all the time. So he gets a job working in a lighthouse. Just kind of tending a lighthouse on this small island. And he meets Alicia Vikander. And they fall in love. And... They get together, but she has two miscarriages. They can't have kids. It's very sad. And then one day, out of nowhere, a boat kind of comes in on the beach and has a baby on it. This is not a good sign. No. Well, also, there's also this a baby dead... is either like a future savior of the universe, <laughs> or it's cursed. <laughs> see that? I want to see that version of the movie uh, or that story. You should write that. But no, well, that's the Ten Commandments. You know, I didn't even think of that when I saw this damn movie. Yeah. No, but this this version, though, is more like... <laughs> but the baby in this one shows up with a dead body. Oh, well, that's different. It. Yeah, and... But well, then, that's a cursed baby. Yeah. Man. There we go. But then the couple decide, like, or more so pushed on by the wife. She's like, what if we don't tell anybody that we found it? Let's just say it's ours. What if he's from another planet? What if he's Superman? <laughs> I don't think the Kents ever pretended that. Did they? Did, I guess as far as anybody knew that he was really their son. They never really go into it. No, really it's not worth explaining. No, they they <laughs> never. You never get to. That see was another the, thing that Captain Christian said in his video about Superman. The more you explain about superhero Superman's origins, the less interesting he becomes. Yes. Anyway. But anyway, baby this, in a boat. Yeah, so they decide, all right, we're going to raise this baby as our own and pretend it's ours. Nobody will know that this baby has some kind of history with this dead body who we're also going to, you know, bury and nobody will know what happened to that. And then, well, no, then years later, it's like, oh, uh, 
hi, I lost a baby years ago, and uh, I don't know what happened to it. It went out to sea. Do, do you know what happened to I it? I put a dead body in it just so I know where which one was mine. Yes. Um, so the movie treats its... It doesn't treat its audience like it's idiots, so that's nice. It doesn't uh, condescend, so that's good. Um, maybe a little bit picaresque, but again, an, an interesting story about motherhood, just like when the bow alien. breaks. Yes, alien. There you go. Aliens, mother! I mean. Mother! God damn you, mother! Uh, aliens just baby. aliens just turned thirty years old. Happy birthday! Yeah. You know what else is turning thirty years old this year? Well, there's a lot of movies that are, but yeah, go ahead. Me. Oh uh, yeah, we gotta do a birthday. <laughs> it's all it's an alien's birthday. <laughs> the xenomorph pops out ah! just at the time that he turns thirty. It was uh, a good run. <sighs> yes. Um, so, yeah, I had that double feature, which made for an interesting 1986. afternoon. Yeah. Aliens came out. Aliens came out. There, We should do, like, a full episode about, like, that year. Because it's a very memorable year of movies. And the Challenger exploded. Uh, yeah. Not related, but, you know. Uh, yeah, and Captain EO premiered. You know what else I think happened in 1986? What? The first Legend of Zelda came out. Yeah, well, a lot of, that was the banner year for Nintendo. Well, the year before was super... All right, yep. look. <laughs> Movies. What so, were we talking about? Well, Lighthouses. The, yes, the light between oceans. Oh, that too. Yeah. Um, so it's a decent movie. I would, If you want to have a nice little date movie with your other one, I, I can recommend it. It might already be leaving theaters. It didn't make a lot of money. It's kind of sad because when a new movie is released on Labor Day, it's kind of like a death sentence. And I feel it just this weekend, the director's wife put out a letter to either Variety or the Hollywood Reporter. And he and like this woman was blasting the critics for review, giving the movie negative reviews. Jeez. And but my thought was, why don't you blame the studio? The studio put your movie out on Labor Day weekend when it has no chance. Yeah, that's only slightly less embarrassing than the director's mother writing a letter. (laughs) What my my boy does the best movies ever. He's a darling. You what? <laughs> Jewish movie director mother. Yeah, sure. Nice. I like yeah. it. <laughs> what's what's not to like? Write the sketch. Yes. Right. Um. So, anything else you'd like to talk about? No. All right. Good. So we're good. Um. But if there are any other movies that you've seen that you want to discuss, uh, send us a message to agesofcinema at gmail dot com, and when we come back. Andrew is going to get into a little movie from the Disney people. And yeah. that's all we're going to say about that. So, Well, it's not going to be much of a surprise because you're about to see or hear what it is. So, 